And we're going to be studying, once again, Revelation chapter 7. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to the very last book of the Bible, the Bible that completes the revelation of God to man, the book that bears that name, the book of Revelation. If you didn't bring a Bible, you'll find one in the songbook rack there in front of you, and you can follow along with us today. And oh man, I wish, uh, I, and I feel this urgency every week to be able to, to put into your minds all the things that we've studied, which is an impossibility. We have been 47 weeks now just getting to chapter 7, so obviously we're not going to be able to do that big of a crash course. But if you'll go back to chapter 1 for just a second, let me just kind of give you a, man, a, a jet tour through what's been going on. John, who is, of course, the Apostle John, the beloved Apostle, is exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and God gives him a revelation. He, he transports him ahead in time. We learn uh, in verse 10 of chapter 1, he is transported forward in time to the time of the day of the Lord, to the time of the second coming of Christ and, and the millennium. He's transported into that time, and from there, look at verse 19, he is told to write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. God is going to give him a revelation concerning the history of mankind. And so what we do coming out of chapter 1 and understanding what we just saw there in verse 10 and verse 19, we begin to see in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 that God writes seven letters to seven churches that were historically found in Asia Minor at the time when John lived, but put into the context of what we just saw in chapter 1, these seven letters are representative of seven periods of church history. And we, we've seen this, we've exhausted this, seven periods of church history that bring you basically from where the book of Acts left, up, left off all the way up through to the rapture of the church. What, what I think is important for you folks who may be guests with us or folks who have not been a part of this study to this point is that we are presently living in the very last period of church history that is spelled out for us in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. We are living at that period of time, and the next event that is going to take place on God's prophetic time clock is found in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. It is the rapture of the church, and that's where it's found in the book of Revelation. And then in chapter 4, what we see is the church in the presence of Jesus Christ around the throne, doing what every person does in the presence of Jesus Christ. They're worshiping him. And we come through chapter 4, and then we come to chapter 5. And in the midst of all of the worship and all of the wonderful things that are going on, all of a sudden, God takes out a seven-sealed book. And all of a sudden, everything stops. Because the angel says, who's worthy to open the book and to open the seals thereof? And nobody was able to. God was sending out a message about mankind that there's never been a man worthy to take the title deed of the earth and rule and reign on this planet. And then all of a sudden, the lamb stands up, the one who is worthy, and he takes the book. And then we come to chapter 6. And he begins to open the seals of that book. And as he does, what begins to happen on the earth is the tribulation period begins to unfold. And that's what's going on in chapter 6. And then we 
Come to chapter 7. This is where, where we are right now. We've been in chapter 7 for two weeks, and we talked about the fact that in chapter 7 we're actually in a, a parenthesis. God is explaining some things in chapter 7 that chronologically took place in chapter 6. And what we see in chapter 7 is that there are two very key groups of people that you've got to understand in this chapter. First of all, there is the 144,000 sealed Jews, you see in verse 4, and then there is a, a numberless multitude of saved Gentiles, and we pick them up in verse 9. And if you haven't been here with us for the last uh, several weeks or so, the, the main point that we've been discussing to this point is the sealing of this infamous 144,000. And we talked in recent weeks about the importance of properly identifying this group of 144,000 because we have seen that this passage has given rise to at least four major American cults. And so we, we said that what we're going to do in our approach to Revelation chapter 7, because this has been such a point of controversy, and because, quite honestly, this passage has literally sent more people to hell than any other passage in the Bible, we have specifically designed this study to just make it as simple as we could possibly do, uh, make it to, to alleviate any, any confusion. And so what we did is we determined that probably our best approach is to just use the approach that an investigative reporter would use, asking the very simple questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how. And last week we began with the question, who? Who is sealed? And we found here in Revelation chapter 7 that it, it is not the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's not the Mormons, it's not the Seventh-day Adventists, it's not the Worldwide Church of God, and folks, it ain't the Baptist either. There's not a Christian in the bunch as far as the church age is concerned we saw first and foremost above everything else that what this passage teaches is that this group of 144,000 that are sealed are flesh and blood Jews not spiritual Jews not spiritual Israel not Abraham's seed spiritually they are Jews 144,000 of them not one more not one less, and not a one of them a Gentile. Not one. In verse 4, he tells us in no uncertain terms that they are 144,000 of all the, what's the next word? Tribes of the children of Israel. And lest anybody should get the, the strange idea that maybe God was referring to spiritual Jews or spiritual Israel, he uses the word tribes in verse 4, and he spells out every single one of them individually in verses 5 through 8. Look at it. The tribe of Judah, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, the tribe, the tribe, the tribe, letting us know that the 144,000 are 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the Jehovah's false witnesses will, will tell you that, no, you don't understand this, this passage. You see, what you've got to do is you've got to take these 12 tribes 
spiritually, because you see, what, and this is the argument they're going to use, they're going to tell you that the 12 tribes that are listed here are different than the 12 tribes that you find in Numbers chapter 13. So you see, since this is not the same tribes, then what this is God is letting you know here that you've got to take these, these tribes spiritually here because right here in the list in, in Revelation chapter 7, Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, and the tribe of Dan has been replaced. And so what we've done in the last several weeks is we've seen that by comparing Scripture with Scripture, that God specifically told the 12 tribes of Israel, and he laid this out in Deuteronomy chapter 29, what he said is that if they ever came to the point to where they led their people into idolatry, God said that he would blot their name out. And we find in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 17 that God says, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. In Hosea chapter 5 and verse 9, he says, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel have I made known that which shall surely be. So listen, we come to that and we say, hey, it's no big surprise that the tribe of Ephraim isn't there because what God is doing, and he's just living up to his word just like he always does. We see the same thing is true with the tribe of Dan. In fact, even more so with the tribe of Dan because we've seen that by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we have every indication to see that the Antichrist will actually be a descendant from the tribe of Dan. Right from the get-go in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 17, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 22, what God did is he said, I want you to get your eye on Dan. And the re way he got our attention was by likening Dan to both a lion and a serpent. And if you'll just run that through your biblical computer, what you'll come up with is the fact that there is no other person in the Bible who is likened to both a lion and a serpent other than Satan himself. And not only that, but when you see the Antichrist foreshadowed in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 and 11, which just happens to be the first mention of cursing in the Bible, what you find in Leviticus 24, verses 10 and 11 is the son of an Israelitish woman and an Egyptian father who just happens to be from the tribe of Dan, strives with a man of Israel, blaspheming and cursing the name of the Lord. And folks, that's exactly what you find in Revelation chapter 13 that will be true of who the Antichrist is and what he will do once he arrives. And we saw in Judges chapter 17 and 18 that it was the tribe of Dan that is connected to the formation and development of that idolatrous system of religion that will be used by the Antichrist to unite the world religiously during the tribulation period. It is a religion that uses, do you remember this? It's a religion that uses black-robed priests called fathers who use idols as aids in worship in their house of gods. And interestingly enough, what we see taking place right before our very eyes in these final days, right before the Antichrist is revealed on this planet, what we see right now before our eyes is the devil already pulling this world together religiously in the name of the Spirit of God, 
and in the name of unity and in the name of revival in a system of religion that is already being followed by a billion people on this planet who use black-robed priests called fathers who use idols as aids in worship in their house of gods. And I'll tell you what, folks, if you're not... If you're not catching anything else from this study, I mean, if you're losing, you know, some of the, the ins and outs of some of this stuff, one of the things you don't want to miss is it's a jungle out there right now in Christianity. And, and the stuff that we're seeing here in the book of Revelation is, is stuff that you've got to get. If you, don't, if you don't rightly divide the word of truth, as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, you can find yourself ashamed one of these days here in the very near future. So no, Dan and Ephraim being replaced in the list has nothing whatsoever to do with pointing to us to the fact that we're supposed to be interpreting these tribes in some kind of a spiritual sense. The replacement of those tribes has everything, however, to do with teaching us what tribe to be looking for for the Antichrist to come to this planet and to be keeping our eyes on the religion of the Antichrist. He says here that the 144,000 are the tribes of the children of Israel. And folks, that's exactly who they are. They are the tribes of the children of Israel. He tells you in verse 3 that they are the servants of our God. And God defined who that is just as clearly as it could be stated in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 55. And you know who that, what that, that verse tells you who these people are? The same that it tells you right here in verse 4, that they are the tribes of the children of Israel. And we looked at some other places where this 144,000 are referred to in Scripture last week in Romans chapter 11. They are the remnant according to the election of grace we also looked in Matthew chapter 25, the fact that they are the brothers of Christ, and obviously we won't take the time to exhaust all of that again, but folks, the point I'm wanting you to see is there's absolutely no reason whatsoever for any confusion about who this group of people is. They are 144,000 Jews, flesh and blood Jews, sealed by God during the tribulation period after the people who new God in this dispensation that we're presently living in called the church age have been removed that was back in chapter 4 and verse 1 and this is the group of people who is sealed these, these Jews in verse 4 and then we looked at another question last week and that is when when are these 144,000 sealed well obviously it's, it's during the tribulation period but when in the tribulation period. And once again, this really isn't very difficult to determine if you just believe what you read when you hold the Bible in your hands. You see, and that's a problem. Because you see, what, what, what man wants to do is he wants to approach this book from his own mindset rather than God's. But, but folks, understand something. This is God's book. You approach God's book in God's way. You don't, you don't approach it haphazardly. You, you don't come in it with, with your own ideas. You come and you let the Bible be the Bible. And we've talked before about the fact that Americans especially have a hard time with the book of Revelation because, you see, Americans are so ethnocentric that they think that the whole world revolves around them. 
You see, most Americans think that God's first language is English, you know? And, and folks, it, it, ain't, it ain't that way. It, it, the, the Bible is an Asian book, and it's written from an Asian men mentality. You see, as Americans, when we think, we think, and, and by the way, when we think, we think that we think we're right. And we think everybody else is wrong because they don't think the way that we do. Okay, now who told you that, though? Okay, you see, when we think, we think, we think in a, in, when we're talking about a timeline, we, we think in, in, in a straight line. We think A, B, C, D, or one, two, three, four. And what we do when we think is we think chronologically. Okay, this happened, and then this happened. And then this happened, and then that, and you know, and, and you see that works really well for us. The only problem is the Bible, and particularly the book of Revelation, isn't laid out like that. Again, the Bible is an Asian book, and God, when he lays out his word, he, he lays it out in circles or, or, or spirals, if you will, and God will cover this ground, and you know what he'll do? He'll come back right around again, and he'll cover it again. And you know what he'll do? He'll come back and, and cover it right... You, you know why? Because God knows how dense we are. And he knows... You know what? If, I, if I'll just keep circling on this thing and say it a different way each time, after a while, they'll, they'll, they'll probably get it. You say, well, you know what? If that's the way that this thing is and me being American, I, I'm, I'll never learn it. I'll never get it then. You know what? All you got to do is just know how it's laid out and then just believe exactly what you read, where you find it, and it'll be no problem. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. Anybody who is a Bible believer at all believes that Revelation chapter 6, all the way to chapter 18, deals with the tribulation period. I mean, everybody that is a fundamental Bible-believing person believes that it's dealing with the tribulation period, but... Nine out of ten of them, and if you pick up a commentary, I'm telling you, nine out of ten of them are going to tell you that chapters 6 through 18 in the book of Revelation fit a chronological timeline. And the problem is they don't. What God does in those chapters is he gives four different perspectives of the same time period. He, he takes us completely through the tribulation period four times, each time emphasizing a different aspect of that time period, much the same way that there are four Gospels that, that don't follow one after the other, giving you know a, a chronological uh, explanation of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it does? God circles it for you, doesn't he? He, he covers the life of Christ first in Matthew, and then he comes at it from a different perspective in Mark, and then he comes at it from a different perspective in Luke. And then he does the same thing again in, in John. And it's the same exact thing that we see in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. He gave you four accounts of the first coming of Christ. He's going to give you four accounts of the second coming of Christ as well. So you see, in chapter 6, what God does in chapter 6 is he brings us completely through the whole tribulation period for the first time. Now, he's going to pick up bringing us through it for the second time in chapter 8. But chapter 7 comes in there as a parenthesis, and we know that by what he tells us about the sealing of this 144,000 in the first three verses. In verse 1 of chapter 7, we're introduced to four 
angels who are holding the wind of God's judgment in the four corners of the earth. And we know that they're the winds of judgment because the end of verse 2 lets you know that it was given unto these four angels holding these four winds. It was given unto them to hurt the earth and the sea with the wind. But in verse 2, an angel ascending out of the east, the same place where the Son of Righteousness will rise, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, but an angel ascending out of the east, an angel, look at verse 2, who possessed the seal of the living God, and obviously he's an angel of higher rank and authority than the other four because he gives the instruction to them with a loud voice, and what he tells them is that they are to withhold the winds of their judgment until, look at the end of verse 3, until we have sealed the servants of our God. In other words, there's a storm of judgment that is coming to this planet. And God says, before that storm begins, I want there literally to be a calm. And during this calm, what I want is I want this 144,000 sealed. Now, folks, we know by the time we get to the end of chapter 6, and certainly verses 12 through 15, we know in chapter 6 that the winds of judgment against nature and, and the earth were already blowing in a major way, so it's obvious that chapter 7 is a parenthesis that's describing some things that were going on before that first seal was opened and or during the opening of that first seal because actually it's apparent that the winds of judgment are blowing by the time of the opening of the second seal. Look in verse 4 of chapter 6. I mean, by that point, the wind of judgment is already blowing. And God's saying, we're going to seal this 144,000 before that wind of judgment begins to blow. So, when are these 144,000 Jews in Revelation chapter 7 sealed? Sometime before the opening of the six seals in chapter 6, and certainly before the three-and-a-half-year mark into the tribulation where the wrath of God begins to be poured out. Because we, we know by the time we get to the end of chapter 6, God has already unleashed His judgment upon this planet. But that surfaces another question about this 144,000. This is letter C on your outline. And that is how. How. Okay, now, now listen. Okay, if the church of Jesus Christ is raptured out in Revelation chapter 4, and, and, and listen to this now, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Okay, now what is the truth? John 17, 17, thy word is truth. Okay? And what he tells us now is 1 Timothy 3.15 is that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so what we've got here is the pillar and ground of truth being removed in Revelation chapter 4 before the sealing of this 144,000. So the question is, how then are these 144,000 Jews converted? And what we find here in Revelation chapter 7 is that they are not saved the same way that you and I are saved. Okay? Now, the best way to understand the conversion of this group of people here in Revelation chapter 7 is to understand the conversion of Saul 
on the road to Damascus. Okay, because Paul's conversion is really a perfect picture of the 144,000. Okay, now you're going to need to follow along real closely. We don't have time to belabor all of this, but follow along closely on, on your study sheet as we begin to just look at the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Okay, okay, and we know none of us were saved. Anybody here saved the way the Apostle Paul was? Mm -mm. Anybody else that you can go to in the Bible in the New Testament saved the way the Apostle Paul was? You know what? There's not another case, and there's never been a case in all of church history. Okay, so, you know, God's letting you know a little something there, but here's basically Paul's testimony. His testimony was that as a Jew, from the tribe of Benjamin, he was walking down the road to Damascus one day when, when all of a sudden the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in the fullness of his glory in blazing, blinding light. You, you remember the story. And immediately, his eyes were opened to whom Jesus Christ actually was. And he called upon the name of the Lord, and he was uniquely and miraculously saved. And Jesus said of him immediately thereafter in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15 that he was a chosen vessel to him, to bear his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And evidently, it must be time to change pages, y'all. <clears throat> okay, did you get that? His eyes open to who he is. He calls upon the name of the Lord. He's miraculously uh, and, and uniquely saved. And Jesus comes along right there after that in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, and he says, this is a chosen vessel to me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And evidently, Paul understood somewhat of the, the significance of his conversion because when he gave his testimony in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8, you remember how he referred to himself? It's a neon light. He's letting you know something about himself. He says, as of one born out of due time, which is a phrase that has reference to a, a premature birth. Paul is saying, I was one born ahead of my time. Okay, And apparently, the same birth that the apostle Paul had will be what will happen again in the tribulation period with this 144,000. And they too, here we go, they too, as Jews of the tribes of the children of Israel, will have the Lord Jesus Christ reveal himself to them, and their blinded eyes will be opened to who Jesus Christ is. And they will call upon his name, and they too will be miraculously converted, and they too will immediately be called commissioned, ordained, sent, and sealed as chosen vessels of the Lord Jesus Christ to bear his name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And that's who you see down in verse 9. Look at it. That, verse 9 is the fruit of their labors. I mean, folks, now, now just get this in your mind. Can you imagine? Now, you know about the Apostle Paul. You know how God was able to use that guy. Can you imagine for a moment 
144,000 Apostle Pauls being unleashed on this planet at one period of time? I'm telling you, it's going to be an incredible thing. We'll talk more about that in just a couple of minutes. But first of all, I want us to answer two other questions. We'll cover these two t together. What and, and where? What is this infamous seal? What is this seal and where are they sealed? Now look at verse 2 again. And verse 2 lets us know several things. First of all, it lets us know that it is the seal of the living God. You want to know what the seal is? It tells you right there. It's the seal of the living God. Now, this angel ascending out of the east has it in his possession. John says in verse 2, And I saw another angel ascending out of the east having the seal of the living God. So he, the angel out of the east has this seal of the living God in his possession. And in verse 3, when the sealing is actually carried out on this 144,000, this angel ascending out of the east contracts the use of these four angels of the wind. And he says to these four angels in verse 3, till we have sealed the servants of our God, till we have sealed. Do you see that? And, and notice where verse 3 says the 144,000 are sealed. Where, where is it? In their foreheads. And you see, I could not possibly be one of the 144,000 because in the la recent years, my forehead has turned into a five head. You can get five fingers up there. It, it, it just keeps getting further and further back. I, be that as it may. Okay, so they're going to be sealed in their, five, in their forehead. And if you don't want to know what this seal of the living God is that he puts in their forehead, then all you've got to do is just believe the Bible and go to Revelation chapter 14. Because it tells you very specifically what this seal of the living God is. Look at Revelation chapter 14 and look at verse 1. John says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb. Okay, we've seen this lamb all the way through this book, buddy. Who's the lamb? The Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him, here they are now, and hundred and forty and four thousand having his father's name written where in their foreheads you know what the seal of the living God is it's the name of the father and what is the name of the lamb's father it's Jehovah right and you see ding 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 that's why this cult that's knocking on, on doors this morning, that's why you know, this group of people that's trying to fit themselves into this 144,000, that's why they call themselves what they call them. Jehovah's Witnesses. You see, because the seal is the name of the Father. The name of the Father is Jehovah, and the name Jehovah means the self-existing one. The self existing one. In other words, the one who has always been living and will always be living. The seal of the what? The living God. He which was, 
which is and which is to come, the living God. And something else to note about this seal is that it is counterfeited in Revelation 13. We're, we're trying to figure out what this seal is. We found out it's the seal of the living God. It's the name of the Father. And now we find out that it's counterfeited in Revelation chapter 13. You, you see, the living and true God, as we've just seen here, He has His seal that He marks in the forehead of His followers during the tribulation period. But the false God of the tribulation period also has a mark that he uses to mark his followers in their forehead during the tribulation period. Now turn back to Revelation 13. You're probably still there in 14. It's probably just right across the page. But you'll notice in verse, verses 16 and 17, speaking of the beast, it says, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name and of course verse 18 tells you the number of his name is 666 and look back over at chapter 14 and what it says happens to those who receive his mark now understand during the tribulation period, if you do not receive the mark that he just talked about, that the mark of the beast, the mark of the Antichrist, marked in the forehead, 666, if you do not take this mark, you can't buy or sell anything. Now, you know what? Most of us have probably grown just a little bit accustomed to eating in our lifetime. And you know what? If you can't buy anything and you can't sell anything, you know what? You can't eat. And if you can't eat, you can't live. So you see, he's got you over a barrel during this period of time. But now watch what happens to those who take this mark. Verse 9, Revelation 14. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and that person and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So you're going to have a choice. Do you receive the mark and die? of starvation, or as we'll see, if you don't take it, what it's going to tell you a little later on in the book of Revelation is you'll have your head chopped off for it. So you've got a choice. Do you lose your life then, or do you suffer day and night for all of eternity because you took the mark? Now, now listen, if you're here today and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, okay, and when I, when I say that, what I'm saying is you've never received the truth of the message of this, this book that Jesus Christ is your only, only, only hope of salvation. Then can I inform you that what the Bible says to us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, what it says 
is that once you have had the opportunity to receive the word of truth, now that's a real sobering thing, because do you understand this morning that God is giving you the opportunity for some strange reason? God has brought you into this room today to give you the opportunity to receive the truth of God the fact that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for your sin so that your sin could be removed and God has given you that opportunity to receive that truth but but now listen if you reject it because as it says there in 2 Thessalonians it says the reason that all of us reject the truth of God is because we want to live our life for ourselves and to please ourselves and it says that if you reject the truth once you've had the opportunity to receive it it says that during the tribulation period because you didn't receive Christ when you had the opportunity to do so what it says is you will receive his mark the mark of the beast and the reason you will receive it you know why you will? Because God will send you strong delusion so that you will believe the lie of the Antichrist. You say, well, that's not fair. Yeah, it is. It's real fair because you see, this morning, God is giving you the opportunity to receive the truth. And when you flip God off, which is exactly what it is, when you spit in his face, when you've heard the message of the truth and you say, I don't care, it's been real fair. And he's given you the opportunity to do that today. But I'm telling you, if you don't, Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, will be a prophecy that you will actually fulfill. You will take the mark of the Antichrist and you will drink of the wrath of God and you will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And you see, and I'm coming on with that, with that string, lest there be anybody here that thinks we can just kind of breeze on past all of this and you know what, it really doesn't matter when you do this thing. You know what, I, I'm really not interested in screwing my life up. Now I'll just do it during the tribulation period and okay, I might go through a little bit of you know, problems and then, but I'll get saved then. <coughs> nope, God set that thing so you can't do that. It's an impossibility. And, and you see folks, now listen. What the Bible teaches no man comes to him unless the Father draws him. And what it says is you ain't going to be drawn unless the Spirit of God convicts you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You see, that's why we're talking about judgment today. So the Spirit of God can take his book right now and get some people that are in here that are just going fat, dumb, and happy through life to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know what? I think I might ought to consider some of these things that the Bible's saying. You see, the, the Spirit of God brings us to a point where the, through the preaching of the Word of God, He brings us to understand who Christ is and what this whole plan is all about so that we can receive the Word of truth. And man, you're going to have that opportunity to be able to, to do that today. But please understand, 
you come when he draws not when you just say you know, I think I'll do it now you know, when he's drawing you when you're hearing the voice of the Lord that's the time that you respond the Bible says today if you'll hear his voice harden not your heart so it sounds like we're coming to the end it ain't so relax but, but please understand you've got something to contemplate through the remainder of this message today about am I going to receive the truth of the word of God or am I going to chance rejecting it and will God draw me again and that's something for you to decide but just like you could count on the devil having a cheap counterfeit for everything that God has ever done all through the Old Testament just like he's always had a cheap counterfeit for everything that God ever did in the church age you know what what we find here is he'll still be at it in the tribulation period and God will have his mark in the forehead of his followers to seal them for all eternity and the devil will also have his mark in the forehead of his servants to damn their souls for all eternity. But not only is it the seal of the living God, not only is it counterfeited in Revelation 13, it's also pictured in Ezekiel chapter 9. It's pictured in Ezekiel chapter 9. And turn back there if you would. In Ezekiel chapter 9, you have a, a prophetic picture of this, this sealing that John's writing about in, in Revelation chapter 7. And of course, I don't know what you know about the book of Ezekiel, but Ezekiel was permitted by God to see some things in, in the future. In fact, almost the entire book of Ezekiel is a prophecy not of the first coming of Christ. It's a prophecy of the second coming of Christ. And God has been showing Ezekiel, by the time we get to chapter 9, he's been showing him all of the abominations that have been going on in the sanctuary in Jerusalem. And God, now, now check this out, okay, now get the context God is about to let the wind of his judgment begin to blow. He says, look in, in verse 18 of chapter 8, what it says there is that he is going to deal in fury. Okay, Does that set the context for you? He's going to deal in fury, but before he does, there's one item of business that he wants to take care of. So look at what Ezekiel said God told him in verse 1 of chapter 9. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them to have charge over the city to draw near every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. Okay, now just stop there for a second. Let me ask you who this is that God's talking about here that have been given charge over the city. Someone says, well, obviously. I mean, it's, it's the city elders. They've been given charge over the city, and, that, and that's a good guess. But what you find in Scripture now is that, that cities and nations have angels that have been designated by God to be over them. Now, that may sound wild to you, but I'm telling you folks that if God were to allow us this morning to see the other half of reality. Now, just you see, we think because we can't see something that it's not real. That doesn't mean anything. If God this morning were to allow us to see the other half of reality that's going on right above our heads today, you know what? 
we'd all be so freaked out that we wouldn't be able to budge. I mean, there would be a holy hush come over this, this room this morning, and I, I promise you, if you could see that, there'd be nobody who'd walk out of here this morning unsaved. You see, and there's a great example of, of what I'm talking about over in Daniel chapter 10. You don't need to turn there. Let me just quickly tell you about it. But what, what you've got in, in Daniel chapter 10 is that Daniel had received a vision from God and he didn't understand everything that God had, had given him in that vision. So he begins to pray that God will give him the answer. But there was no answer. So he begins to continue to pray and he, he, he's fasting and, and the scripture says there in Daniel chapter 10 it says that he prayed and he fasted for three solid weeks. And finally what it says is Daniel's cruising along down by the river skipping stones and asking God to, to reveal this vision to him and all of a sudden whoop, he sees another part of reality that he had never seen before. And lo and behold here it is here's this angel who was the, the ministering spirit over Persia where Daniel lived and he comes down and, and he says to, to Daniel, listen, hey, hey, Danny, listen, God has heard your prayer. In fact, he heard it three weeks ago when you started praying about it, but man, you wouldn't believe what's been going on out there. I've been out there in outer space fighting with the demonic angels, the demonic forces that had also been set over that city. You see, God had His ministering spirit over that city. That was the angel that came down to talk to Daniel. But he says, man, I've been up there fighting with the powers that are fighting for control of the, this place. And he says to Daniel, man, I'll tell you what, I appreciate you praying and fasting because you know what God did? He cut Michael loose, and Michael's up there kicking that guy's behind right now so I could come down here and give you the answer. <laughs> Check it out. That's in the Hebrew where it says that. <laughs> but I mean, it's, I mean, it's an, absolute, an absolute trip when you really begin to understand what's going on that we don't see. And I promise you, folks, if there were those kind of people set, or beings set over cities counties, provinces, and nations back then, I guarantee you that same thing's happening today. The, the, the warfare that we're in, folks, to reach the people in this county, in the surrounding counties, you know what? Maybe the reason we're not winning more of them is because we don't have people like Daniel praying and fasting. Maybe a lot of the answers just ain't getting through. Oh, God's answered them. There's just nobody praying and, and fasting, and that's just food for thought. But in verse 1, those who God is talking about that have charge over the city in, in this passage are angels. You say, well, how can they be angels? Because the rest of the verse says, you know, referring to, to those who have been given charge over the city, every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And verse 2, and behold, six Men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand, and one man among them was clothed with white linen. And if you go back to Daniel chapter 10, you'll see that it's exactly the way that Daniel saw that angel that came to him. And he had the writer's inkhorn by his side, and they went in and stood beside 
the brazen altar, you say, well, man, this is men. This ain't angels. But you know what? If you know anything about how God talks about and uses angels in the Bible, you know that many times when they show up on the earth, God refers to them as men, and they appear as men. They appear in bodily form. And you know what? They, they can eat, they can drink, and they can carry on conversations. And many times when you see them in the Bible, they do. And that's why Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2 says that some have entertained angels, what? Unawares. You know what? You've talked to some men in your day that you thought were men. And what God's telling you is, you might well have been talking to an angel that thought, this is too freaky for me. Well, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That some have entertained angels unawares, and that's what's shaken down here. You'll notice in verse 2 that one of the angels has a writer's inkhorn by his side, and watch what happens in verse 3. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereupon he was to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side, and the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. In other words, all of those who truly love God. And God said, I want you to put a seal or a mark on their foreheads, verse 5, and to the others he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city and smite, let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark. So do you see it? Now, now hold on here. God wanted his angels of judgment to let the wind of his fury begin to blow. But before they do, he wanted to set a seal or a mark on the foreheads of a group of Jews who would escape the judgment. And in Revelation chapter 7, folks, it's the same exact thing. You can turn over there. In Revelation chapter 7, what we've got here is God has his four angels standing on the four corners of the earth ready to let the whirlwind of God's judgment begin to blow, but before it does, there are some Jews that God wants to have written his own name on their foreheads as a seal. So that's what this seal is. It is the seal of the living God, his own name, the name Jehovah, marked in the foreheads of 144,000 Jews before the wind of his judgment begins to blow in the tribulation period that will seal his servants for all eternity. It is the seal that's counterfeited by the God of this world in Revelation chapter 13 that will damn his followers to torment for all eternity. And it's the seal that we find given to us in Ezekiel chapter 9 as a prophetic picture. So that's what it is. That's where you find it. And that brings us to one final question. And that is, is why? Why are they sealed? What, what is God doing with this thing? 
And you know what? I, I, I'd love to, to cover this this morning, but if we do, it's going to take us probably 20 minutes to do it, and I think what we'll do is we'll just we'll park here. We'll pick it up next week. This is such a controversial passage. I'm telling you, been, you know, we, we talk about this, and I, and I think maybe we really don't comprehend the fact that there have been people in America, and it's strangely enough strictly America, where all four of these cults are, have arisen, that try to work themselves into that group of 144,000. Obviously, if it was an easy passage to unfold, there wouldn't be that many people in hell this morning claiming to be one of that 144,000. As you can see, though, it is not real difficult to understand this stuff, is it? I mean, if you just believe the Bible, the way God laid it out there, it's really pretty simple. I mean, it's, 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 I feel like I'm teaching kindergarten, really. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's all there. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this stuff out. And yet this morning, I know that there are people that are in this room. And you've seen it today. I mean, you've seen God unfold this, this stuff right before your very eyes. And yet some of you are going to make this more difficult than it really is. Do you know what the whole message of the Bible is? The whole message of the Bible is God is a holy God. And as a holy God, he's just. Man come along, and God had entered into a personal love relationship with that man. And man chose the way of sin rather than the way of the holy God. And because God is just, he must deal with that sin. But God is a God of love, and he didn't want man to have to pay the penalty for his own sin by being eternally separated from him in a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for men, but for the devil and his angels, and so that you didn't have to pay the consequence of your sin. You know what God did? God became a man, came to this planet, died on the cross so that you could have a personal love relationship with him once again. A, B, you see, I mean, this is really, really simple. It's not tough. And yet some of you, after hearing the simplicity of the message, will choose to make it difficult. And again, I, I want to I say that God presents this message of love to you against the backdrop of his judgment. And he says, I, I love you, and I've done everything that I can possibly do, but if you flip me off, if you spit in my face, if you trample the blood of my son, you still will pay for your sin. Folks, listen, the price of sin is going to be paid. And it's either you receive what God did in payment for your sin through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, or you pay for it for all eternity. Okay, so, class, which would you prefer? <laughs> and you see, that's, that's, that's really the bottom line. That's what it's all about. Let's bow our heads. And Lord, I, I do pray for people in, in this room that desperately need...
the, the message that they've they just heard put in, in simple terms. And I pray this morning that you would do what we've already talked about, that only you can. I, I can't draw people to you and I, I can proclaim your word, but I can't convict a, a person of their sin and of righteousness and judgment. I, I don't have that ability. You've got to do that. And so I'm praying right now that you would take your word and I pray that you would take it to the hearts of, <clears throat> of these wonderful folks. I pray that this would be the day that people that came in here lost, heading toward eternal judgment. I pray that this would be the day that they would be saved and enter into the joy of eternal life. And Lord, for those, again, uh, of us who do know you, I pray that you'd use this to show us the urgency of, of this period of time that we find ourselves living in. Help us not to, to be pulled back into this, this world system, be living in, in sin and disobedience and missing the fact that there are people all around us that desperately need the message of the gospel. So Lord, would you please do your work in, in our midst today and, and save people for your glory's sake. Amen.